I love the bite right at the end. It's awesome. Um, I don't know if uh, you're aware of this. There's uh, an election coming up. You're aware. If you're not, please see the kiosk on your way out. We will send a team out to remove the rock that you've been living under, okay? Um, this election season is quite possibly the most contentious of all time, uh, at least in my lifetime. And those that are older than me, been on planet Earth a little bit longer, would probably also affirm we've never seen anything quite like this. Um, we're no longer trying to uh, assess or affirm who's the better candidate. We, we gave up on that a long time ago. Now we've just kind of turned the guns on the other side and we're just saying this person's worse than me, okay? So that's where we're now at politically. The, uh, the debates coming up are probably hands down going to be the most watched political spectacle ever. And then, of course, come November, oh, come November, um, the uh, level of uh, indifference to the outcome will be at an all-time low. But I will tell you what will be high. Uh, will probably be anger, uh, rage, uh, absolute happiness and joy, right? It's going to be complete polar opposite reactions. And uh, the country, our country, is going to feel things on two totally different ends of the spectrum. And so what we thought we would do is kind of walk alongside our culture in this political process leading up into November. So if you weren't already burned out on the uh, retweets and the social media commentary on the on the, the state of politics and the 24-hour news cycle we thought that you could also come to church and hear about politics even more isn't that great so here's what we're gonna do um, we thought it would be interesting if we took key biblical figures and we viewed them as though they were running for president of the United States and we're going to highlight their victories and their losses, the decisions that defined who they were. And then you can kind of choose, would you vote for them? And actually what I would probably bet is the vast majority over the coming weeks, you wouldn't choose them. And what's fascinating is God did. And so what I hope begins to kind of rise to the surface is God's sovereignty, um, that God ordains government that God's in absolute control, that even when God lays whole countries low or lifts countries up, He's always in control. God is in control. And it seemed fitting that um, the first candidate that would run for president, the first candidate that we would kind of look at, kind of a uh, holy trinity uh, hit piece, I guess you could say, paid for infomercial today that you're going to hear, is reviewing the candidate Adam for president. This is, uh, this is the first person that we're going to take a look at uh, in the coming weeks. Now, uh, 1972, before I was born, unfortunately, but 1972 was a peak year for Richard Nixon. Now, here's the thing. I'm keenly aware, okay, that there's a lot of external factors to the office of the presidency that create social change, that put laws in order, that change things that happen throughout our country and breakthrough moments within our country. Yes and amen. All I'm about to tell you is that if Richard Nixon had kind of like a trading card and you flipped it over and looked on the back, that the things, some of the things that happened during his presidency were pretty impressive. 1972, he's humming pretty good, okay? And, and this is what I mean. Um, under his presidency up to that point, he had... Uh, desegregated the schools in the southern states. He had started the EPA. 
Uh, he started the National Cancer Institute. Uh, National Cancer Institute. Uh, he ended the draft. He made a historic trip over to China within negotiations to end Vietnam, okay, and, and to pull and to bring our soldiers home. Um, at this point, the man was a political machine. Matter of fact, when he went into the 1972 election, he beat uh, uh, the, the candidate McGovern so bad, he won every state with the exception of Massachusetts and British Columbia. That's it. In the latter half of the 20th century, there's never been a landslide that bad. But there was a problem. See, a lot of you uh, young folks, and I don't know what kind of history we're teaching uh, that we've been growing up with. I don't know what all you know. A lot of us know uh, Spygate. A lot of us know Deflategate, right? And some of our younger folks may not, well, why are they throwing gate at the end of everything? Like, what's that about? Well, uh, I can tell you why, because the original was called Watergate. Watergate Complex. It was the, the home of the Democratic National Committee. As a matter of fact, it was in Washington, D.C. Five unarmed middle-aged men dressed in suits got caught by a guard. They had removed some files. They had knocked out some ceiling tiles with the intent of learning information on what was going on and to bug uh, the committee offices, the headquarters of the Democratic National Committee. Now, here's what's weird. The man would go on to dominate. But there was information or knowledge that he was just convinced he needed. And he didn't need it. But it wasn't enough, see? It wasn't enough. And of course, like any scandal, then the cover-up begins to ensue. And as the cover-up happens, what he does is what any good leader would do. You throw your inner circle under the bus, right? That seems like the politically expedient thing to do. And so what, by the time uh, things come to a head, the vice president resigns, uh, the, uh, the head of his... Uh, uh, domestic affairs resigns, his chief of staff resigns, his head of legal counsel uh, is fired. Um, the whole thing is a mess. The Washington Post keeps this story going, won't let it die. And finally, there is so much heat on President Nixon that the House Judiciary Committee finally says that he is looking at impeachment. Only in the last hundred years would he be the second president that's looking at the barrel of impeachment. And so August 9th, 1974, he goes before the nation and he resigns office. Resigns office. Here's the thing. The average person, if I just asked you about Nixon, the average person isn't going to talk about the EPA, isn't going to talk about the Cancer Institute, isn't going to talk about ending the draft. The average person would talk about Watergate. And after the assassination of JFK in 63, the uh, assassination of Robert Kennedy and MLK uh, in 1968, by the time we got to 74 with this scandal and cover-up, never again would the American public trust a public official. Never again. Matter of fact, if you fast forward to today, we expect scandals. We expect it. We're actually fine with it. In fact, we tolerate scandal. Beyond even tolerating it, we celebrate it now. We have shows called Scandal, right? Uh, the Blacklist. I love the Jason Bourne movies. 
The whole thing is about what the government isn't telling you. That's the world we all live in. We assume half of what they say is a lie. And we're happy if we just get half of what they say they're going to do done, right? That's where most of us are at, let's be honest. And so now we, that is the place that we are at. The, the country would never be the same after 1974. The carnage of that we've never recovered from. And, and I would argue probably never will. It was that far reaching. And so we're going to look at a candidate today, Adam, because he is the father of the original scandal, and he is the father of the original cover-up. And I hope as you begin to kind of walk with me through this text, um, what you will begin to see is that what happened with Nixon really wasn't that unique. Actually, it was just kind of a rip-off from what happened here. See, with Adam, there would never again be uh, two people, him and his first lady, Eve, Never again would two people have more power and authority and responsibility than these two individuals. Never again would there ever be two people who would start with perfection and their one decision that they would make would actually impact every living, breathing thing for all time, forever. No two people have ever done this much damage in one decision. And so we're going to look at Adam. We're going to look at the story of Adam. And, and I would ask you if you want to open up uh, your Bibles to Genesis chapter 1. We're, I'm going to put all the scriptures on the screen as well because we're going, to, we're going to fly through to some extent. But if you'd like to follow through, I'd love that too if you want to follow along uh, in scripture. Now before we, um, we get going, I want to, I want to read, uh, and you'll see up here, three passages to help us understand the creation narrative. This is important, okay? Uh, number one is Genesis 1.1, very beginning. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. John 1.10, he was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. Genesis chapters 1-2, now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. So let me just kind of tell you really what that means. That means that the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit were at creation. One God, three persons, we're all at creation. Sometimes we make this weird move, and we don't even realize we're doing it, but it's, it's actually heresy, uh, is sometimes we just think, well, just the Father created. And then he kind of got tired right when the New Testament showed up or just kind of disinterested, right? And then he, he kind of looked at the bullpen, and he called in Jesus to kind of take over, you know, kind of thing. Um, you know, Jesus wasn't left-handed. That's why I did that. You know why? Because he was always right. Oh, that was horrible. Oh, man, one more of those and I'll just leave. Okay, it's fine. Okay, and so uh, you, have, you have Jesus that is in the second person of the Trinity. The Son is intimately involved in creation. Then you have the Holy Spirit involved in creation. The Holy Spirit doesn't just show up at Pentecost when we got tambourines and ready to dance and party and throw it up and we got a flame over our head. That's not the only time you see the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit is also present at creation. Okay, and that's really, really important. So let's take a look at Adam and Eve, Genesis chapter 1, 27 to 28. Now granted, uh, it wasn't just 1972 for Adam and Eve. Uh, it was far greater. It was perfect. So you don't know perfect in this room. You know you don't even know the color green in this room. You know a shade of what you believe is green. But something flawed, looking at something flawed, is flawed. This is perfection. Every breath 
that enters into the lungs that is perfect, into lungs that are perfect, is something that's indescribable. You, you can't even understand it or fathom it in this room. That's where he started, was perfection. And we see Genesis chapter 1, 27 to 28. Please read along. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds of the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Now, this was a dream. And what I mean is uh, sometimes a dream can be a good thing and sometimes it's a nightmare. Okay? So sometimes people ask me, hey, Josh, how's it going? And I say, live in the dream. It's an answer, non-answer. It could be a nightmare. I don't tell you. I just say it's a dream. Hey, Josh, how's it going? 100 miles an hour. What does that even mean? It's just something I throw out there, right? Well, for, for, for most men, this point in creation, this is a fantasy. And for most women at this point in creation, this is a nightmare. So if you can imagine two people without a stitch of clothing on their bodies, and God is saying, hey, guys, Get out there, do some manual labor. You won't get tired. It's all good. I want you to rule over all this stuff. Work with your hands. Feel manly. This is good. You're going to get to lead all of this. And then see that woman over there who's perfect? Uh, yeah, I want you to make lots of babies with her. Okay? And the average guy would go, all right, all right, all right. Am I right? Okay, that's the average guy. Now, the average woman in here the thought of working manual labor naked in front of your husband, that's terrifying, right? Nobody wants to do that. Lots of babies. Do you realize how sick I got this last time, right? Lots of babies. You know, my body hurts. But you have to understand, there's no shame. Ladies, what you go through and what you feel, there's no shame. There's no embarrassment. There's no pain in childbirth. It doesn't even exist. So God gives this mandate. Genesis 2, 23 to 24, the man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. So perfect was this relationship that it would become the cornerstone of our understanding of marriage and how it was formed and what it means even into our culture today. Now, I'm not going to dive a whole lot into that other than that statement right there because quite frankly that could be a 10-week series all by itself but you need to know that just the idea of marriage actually is in genesis it's already there at the beginning and then we move into genesis 2:25. adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame the average woman in here average okay if we sat down and talked and I asked the right leading questions and gave the right kind of feedback, the average woman will tell you all about her life, stories, her emotions, how X, Y, and Z made her feel. And, 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 if, and if I asked a certain kind of question, it could go on for three hours and we'd never even blink, right? They would just open up. The average woman loves to get and be able to talk and talk and communicate, right? Guys only have so many words at the end of the day, right? But women and being able to open up about who they are and what's going on. But let me say this. If you degrade a woman, specifically in the areas that make her beautiful and make her unique in her creation, the way that she was created by God, there enters into that woman shame. And that shame begins to drive an idea 
And that idea drives a belief. And that belief becomes a tape that's played over and over and over again in that woman's mind that then informs the things that she says and the things that she does and the things that she thinks she can't accomplish and can't be in her life. All comes back to shame. Now this is how different men are. I mean, you can look at a man right in the eye and say, you're fat. Okay? And the average guy will go, yeah, I know. Hey, are you hungry? You know, that's just the average guy. Like, we're, it doesn't affect us. But let me tell you this. You look at the average man. You look at the average man and you ask him to share with you the moments in which he was most hurt in his life. Where he's most unsure of himself where he's most insecure, and you will hear nothing but silence. And the whole point is, is shame within men and women, of course, it manifests itself differently, but none of that existed. Matter of fact, I'll just say this with men. Ladies, so you, you probably already know this, but I'll share it with you anyway, okay? It's for free. Is where, show me a man where the machismo is on steroids, okay? He's the big rooster all the time. He's got all the right answers, like, like the real, real kind of, uh, a narcissistic know-it-all, right, kind of person, and they're bigger than life all the time, every time, I can tell you that you show me that kind of man, I will show you a man with deep, deep hurts rooted in very real shame. So shame was real, and they didn't have any of that either. There was no barrier. They were fully known by God. And of course, then there was the opportunity in Genesis 3, 1 to 6. See, Satan looks for the opportunity. And he found a gap. And he exploited it. Verse 1, Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat from uh, the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for, good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. See, here's what Satan does. He convinces you at some moment that God is holding out on you. He convinces you at some moment that God's plan for you is actually, actually his disinterest in your life, that there's actually this void there. And what you need to do is kind of white knuckle your life, take control of it and fix it yourself. He doesn't tell you that he's setting you up for unspeakable pain, but if you're not happy, he'll tell you this is what you can do to make yourself happy. If you're not fulfilled, this is what you can do to be fulfilled. If you want to fix your marriage, don't fix the marriage. Just throw it away. Here's a way that this person over here will fix your life, see? And he works and operates in that void, in that gap, and in that doubt. And he exploits it. Oh, I wish people could have looked at Adam and Eve and said, Do you realize the bite that you're about to take will cause cancer to millions of people who will die and perish as adults and as children? Do you understand that bite? will be forest fires and earthquakes and, 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 and life-ending diseases. Do you understand that at some point millions and millions of people will fall into slavery, into tyranny, six million Jews will be exterminated, that there will be something called ISIS who will come along and 
rape little Yazidi girls and turn around and take Christian little boys and crucify them in the town square? Do you understand the unspeakable broken hearts, broken families, and broken lives that are at stake just so you can have a moment of pleasure? How we just can't seem to look beyond what we have right in front of our face. And we fall to that to this day. Consumed by what we want right now. What's right in front of our eyes. And we never think generationally speaking. Parents, I'm glad you're here. Really glad you're here. If you catch one thing in your time at Pilgrim, please catch this with your kid. Okay? Because you may have come here thinking, I don't know, they're blessing some backpacks. They put some markers in there and he's going to do something on it. And my kid will be able to write in cursive next week. Like, I don't know why maybe some of you are here. Maybe you just got bamboozled or you feel guilty because your kid wants to be here. Whatever it could possibly be, okay? But I need you to hear this loud and clear. That little person sitting next to you is not you just raising your kid. That little person sitting next to you is you raising your grandkids. Because the way that you love and pour into and nurture that little person sitting next to you that will inform the kind of godly man and woman that they become that will inform the kind of spouse that they look for and that will that will inform the type of parent that they become making life either a nightmare or a true blessing for your grandkids you sitting next to you is not your little son or your little daughter your little five six seven eight ten year old child what's sitting next to you is two to three generations you haven't even met yet and while I'm on the topic, let me remind you of this, that here at Pilgrim, your kids as they walk through the gate, they're not three and a half to four and a half foot tall tuition payments. They are the future leaders in our church and in our communities. Men and women of God, husbands and wives, we are partnering with you for something far greater than just helping them read and write. Do you understand that? That's the dedication of our men and women here on our staff. It isn't a game. The very future of our culture is at stake. And we've just asked God if we can just be a part of one little corner of Houston. That's it. So if you're a father here today, see past the short skirt in your office. There is so much at stake. There is so much at stake in our future. And we just want to walk with you. We just want to walk with you. Genesis 3, 12 to 13, the denial. you got to love this. This is the heart of Adam. The man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate it. So to be clear, God doesn't let Eve off the hook. She's held responsible. But can you believe Adam's response? In one sentence, he holds God accountable and the woman completely MIA. It's God's fault and it's her fault. Can I just say something to you? Adam believed a lie that the second bite isn't as bad as the first. I don't know what's going on in your home. I don't know what's going on in your marriages. I don't know what's going on in your life. But sometimes someone close to you, dear to you, they bought that same lie that I was talking to you about with Satan and Adam and Eve. Okay, 
and they took the first bite. And I can promise you, you taking the second bite won't fix it, won't solve it. Adam bought the lie. And of course now, the cover-up, the classic cover-up, because every scandal needs a cover-up, right? Genesis 3, 7 to 10. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Men and women, do you understand what just happened? Do you understand that this was the moment? This is it. This is now shame and guilt. Now both men and women feel shame. Now they're trying to sew fig leaves on. Now it's not in Scripture, but I'm, I, I feel like this probably had to have happened. This was the moment. And Adam never saw it coming. Eve, sewing on fig leaves, now feeling shame, probably looked at Adam and said, do these fig leaves make me look fat? For thousands of years, we've taught men how to handle this question. You never hesitate. We only speak about it in dark corners and hushed voices, and we pass it on from generation to generation. How to answer this question? There's no way he could have answered it right. You know, Adam probably looked at her and said, come on, Eve, you're perfect, baby. Well, you were perfect. Like 10 minutes ago, you were perfect, okay? Not perfect anymore, but you were, right? Uh, I'm sure it was something awkward like that. Okay, anyway. <laughs> oh, brother. Verse 8. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees in the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He answered. I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. There's God in the cool of the day. Now, I don't know if theologically you've ever thought about this before, so I'll help us kind of piece together uh, what I believe actually happened, okay? Let's look at John verses 118. This is Jesus, and Jesus doesn't lie, okay? So he's not a liar, so we can go with it, okay? John 118. No one has ever seen God but the one and only Son, who is himself God, and is in closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. Here's Jesus again in John 6, 46. No one has seen the Father except the one who is from God. Only he has seen the Father. And then Exodus 33, 20. Now this is God the Father talking, okay? He says, but, he said, you cannot see my face, for no one may see me and live. So Jesus says, no one's ever seen the Father. And the Father says, no one's ever seen my face, because if you've seen it, you're not going to live. So here's my question. Who's walking in the cool of the day? After sin, who's walking in the garden and who's talking to Adam and Eve when they're covered in shame, when they're covered in embarrassment, when they're covered in guilt? And I'd submit to you walking in the cool of the day just as he was involved in creation itself, as John tells us. The Son of God, later to be revealed as Jesus in the New Testament, was right there talking to Adam and Eve, meeting them in their guilt and in their shame. Exodus 3.15 And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. Let me just say this. Whatever amount of cover-up has happened in your life, whatever kind of scandal is going on in your life, whatever kind of shame 
that you're dealing with, can I just remind you that just as sure as the Son of God walked in the garden and pursued people in shame, He also to this day pursues you. He's not embarrassed by you. He's not overwhelmed by your mistakes. You're not too dirty for Him to deal with. So is the love of Jesus. Richard Nixon, September of 1974, would be pardoned of all of his indiscretions by Gerald Ford. And we see in Genesis 3.15 that there's a promise that God would send his son and that uh, his son would not pardon the sin of Adam and everyone else by the stroke of a pen and ink on a page, but by the nails through his wrists and his feet, and with his holy, precious suffering and blood shed on the cross for each and every one of us. I imagine Adam as he kind of walked out of the garden uh, because he was obviously impeached from the garden, right, of Eden. I can imagine him kind of throwing up one of these, right, as he goes away, right? I mean, I can see that, right? Can you imagine a scandal so bad that you're not just the butt of jokes? You're not just remembered in culture today. Matter of fact, the scandal that you were a part of was so bad and so devastating that most people don't even believe you ever existed to begin with. Now that's devastating. I need you to understand that from this moment on, every other candidate that we look at from this day forward, God is enacting a perfect plan using imperfect people and broken pieces. It'll never again be what it was for Adam and Eve. And so I close this morning with one simple thought. Would you vote for Adam?